listen, I'm not a bad person, I'm a doctor. One of the reasons I wanted to become a doctor was that I thought it would be good, as in good, rather than exciting or well-paid or glamorous. I liked how it sounded. I want to be a doctor. I'm training to be a doctor. I'm a GP in a small North London practice. I thought it made me seem just right. Professional, kind of brainy, not too flashy, respectable, mature, caring. Anyway, I'm a good person. I'm a doctor. That's actually Katie Carr in Nick Hornby's book, How to Be Good. And Katie thinks she's good enough. If she does something wrong, she feels that she can atone for it by dealing with uh, perhaps a few extra difficult uh, patients, lancing perhaps a particularly nasty abscess and she will have got herself back into the uh, good category. But in their book, Katie actually discovers that she's not good. She has an affair and she is troubled by guilt which she cannot brush off. Then there's her husband, David. He begins the book as a grumpy, bitter man. And then he undergoes this amazing spiritual transformation under the influence of a faith healer called DJ Good News. Sadly, it doesn't last. And in the end, Katie and David stumble towards a life together which is perhaps a little better than it was at the beginning but still dominated by imperfection and frustration. The book is a pessimistic one. It promises to tell us how to be good, but actually in the end it mocks the idea of being good at all. The best we can hope for, it says, is to be perhaps a little bit less bad than we might have been. I think that's one of the reasons why our modern world is actually so suspicious of Christian morality. People just can't believe it could ever be lived out in a healthy way. You know the story of the um, atheist and the bear who meet on a, on a path and um, uh, the bear is about to eat the atheist but then a, um, a kind angel appeal, appeals to God. The angel says, can't you make the atheist into a Christian before he gets eaten? Then at least he'll go to heaven. But God replies, well, that's impossible. It would take far longer than we've got to make him into a, into a Christian. So the angel says, well, <clears throat> perhaps bear's a bit easier then. Make the bear into a Christian and then we might buy some time for this poor atheist. So uh, God agrees and he makes the bear into a Christian and the bear amazingly kneels down and prays saying for what I'm about to receive may the Lord make me truly thankful. You see the hope in making the bear a Christian was that it might actually transform his character. But the reality was that it just adorned his homicidal behaviour with a bit of prayer. And most of the world thinks that's what happens when people become Christians. Spiritual transformations like um, uh, David's in, in Nick Hornby's books are actually simply the product of quackery performed by people like DJ Good News or me. It's not real moral transformation. 
And the only alternative in people's minds to that obsessive, uh, to, 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 to that is an obsessive rules-based form of, of goodness. That's what the media, I think, is always presenting to us as, uh, as, as what it means to be Christian. Cannot see anything else but uh, Christian morality being all about um, condemning things and stopping things happening, binding us with rules. I got rung up this week by the Oxford Mail to comment on the fact that a sex shop has got license, uh, a licence to open on Sundays on the, on the Cowley Road. And I knew the headline the reporter wanted. He wanted a headline like, It's atrocious and should be banned, especially on the Lord's Day, says East Oxford Vicar. So I tried to explain to this reporter, he called me a rector actually, I felt very large. I tried to explain to him that actually I thought it was relatively secondary what day of the week that... um, uh, this, this shop opened, my major concern was that people damaged themselves with pornography. Sex is far too good to be peddled in sleazy shops. He gulped a bit and um, decided to keep going. He said, but, but it's right opposite a mosque, he said. So I explained to him that perhaps that meant that it shouldn't open on a Friday since that's the uh, day of prayer for the, for, for the Muslims. There was a long pause on the phone. He said, but you are against it, aren't you? That's all they want to know. Christians are against things, especially things that happen on Sunday. They should ban them. And that's precisely not the Bible's central vision about how to be good. Obviously, there needs to be some laws and constraints in society at large, but actually those will not make us good at all. Look at uh, Colossians chapter 2, verses 20 to 23, the end of uh, the passage from last week. Since you died with Christ to the basic principles of this world, why, though you still belong to it, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These are all destined to perish with use because they're based on human commands and teachings. Such regulations have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence, says Paul. Rules are useless in the end if we want to be good. One of the reasons why I get so hot under the collar actually when I turn to chapter 3 of Colossians and I see that the NIV has chosen to entitle, <coughs> entitle it Rules for Holy Living. The whole of chapter 2 is about how Christians are, in a profound way sense are free from rules. We are forgiven through Christ's death on the cross. He has cancelled the written code with its regulations that was against us, says Paul. Colossians chapter 3 is going to make, make it plain that, that that doesn't mean, of course, that we can live in any way lo- we like, but it does mean that rules will not help us to lead, lead a good life. Actually, what he, what he tells us in, in chapter 3 is that God has done something deep in the heart of every Christian 
uh, that simply needs to be cultivated, simply needs to be uncovered, simply be, needs to be allowed to grow, and then they will be good. So, um, in answering, answering that question then, how, how then can we be good if rules are so useless? Paul says, uh, first of all, uh, that it's in verses 1 to 4 of chapter 3, it is about what we desire. Since then you have been raised with Christ, set your heart on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things, for you died. Your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him (coughs) in glory. If we are Christians here this morning, then we are the inheritors of the most extraordinary treasure. At present, that treasure is kept in safekeeping with God and Christ sitting at God's right hand. But one day, says Paul, Christ will appear. One day, we too will be presented to him, either in this life, if he appears before we die, or more likely when we are raised from the dead, just as Christ was. We will be presented to him in our resurrection bodies. We will appear with him in glory, says Paul. And that, he says, is the most stupendous promise you could imagine. It is the promise of life such as we have barely tasted it right now. It is the promise of a relationship with God and with people which is uninhibited by sin, untarnished, full of love, delight, pleasure, ecstasy, forever. It is the promise of beauty such as we cannot imagine. The beauty of delicate flowers and wild oceans and towering mountains and star-spangled skies now made absolutely perfect, absolutely clean to last forever in God's renewed creation. Right now, we cannot see that. Right now, it is kept safe with God and Christ. But one day, Christ will appear. One day, we will appear in glory. And that glorious recreation will have happened. when you see something beautiful in this, in this world, think for a moment that that is, that is just a little anticipation of the beauty of God's creation. The glory of his new creation will be more solid, its beauty untarnished, the pleasure of it will fill our hearts forever. And when we do that, when we let those truths dwell deep in our hearts, when we set our hearts and minds on those things that God has safe in his hands at the moment, ready to be given to us, then you will find that uh, the battle against sin becomes so much easier. It is first of all about what we desire. We are fools. We desire trivial things, broken things. 
when we are promised the reality, the wholeness, the fullness. It is about as well a new life that we have already been given. Look at verses 9 and 10 for instance. Do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. There is something that we did in the past, he says. We, we took off our old self. We put on a new self when we became Christians. But this new self now is being nurtured and grown, renewed by God. And the way that God is doing that is by helping us to know Christ. We are being renewed in knowledge, he says. As we know Christ more, so we become more like Christ. Our new self, he says, is being renewed um, in knowledge in the image of its creator. And that being the case, says Paul, we must put to death those old things which still cling to us, verse 5. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, greed, which is adultery. Note he doesn't say, like the Ten Commandments, do not commit adultery. He says, put to death sexual immorality, impurity and lust. He doesn't say don't steal. He says put to death greed. It's not that the Ten Commandments were wrong. Sometimes Paul quotes the Ten Commandments. It's that they weren't radical enough. Paul goes on, verse 8. Now you must rid yourselves of all such things as these. Anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language from your lips. Thou shalt... uh, Murder is one of those sort of comforting ones of the Ten Commandments, isn't it? Because everyone can tick it, almost everyone. I haven't murdered. But Paul says, uh, uh, no, rid yourself of the roots of murder, anger, rage, malice. And that is profoundly discomforting, but not in the end for Christians. Because Christians know how to do that. Christians know how those profoundly deep problems in our hearts do get put to death and driven out. It's because we have come to know Christ. It's because the more we know Christ, the more we are like him. The more we are like him, the more we are able to see those failures in our lives waste away and die. When we see Christ, you see, we see him mixing with tax collectors and sinners. We see him forgiving an adulteress. Neither do I condemn you, he says to her. Go and sin no more. We see him turning on the self-righteous and saying, it's not the healthy you need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. We see him captivating people's hearts. We see him with the Apostle Peter, after Peter has dramatically failed him, recommissioning Peter with the words, feed my sheep. We see him dying on the cross for our sins. We see him accepting failed people like us and dealing with that. 
As we come to know Christ, we find ourselves amazingly able to put to death impurities of that old life, to rid ourselves of anger, rage, malice, slander. In a way that rules never really could do. Because we have found Christ. We have found someone who loves us more than we could ever imagine. We have found someone who paid for our sins completely in his death on the cross. As we know him, we become like him. It is about a new life we have already been given. What we need to do is enjoy that life of knowing Christ. And then uh, Paul goes on using slightly different language but similar ideas. It is about a new identity we have already been given, he says in verses 12 to 17. Look at verse 12. Therefore as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness and patience. If we are Christians, we have been chosen by God. We are his chosen people. We are holy, says Paul, that is set apart for him. We are dearly loved. God so loved the world that he sent his only son, said John, for you. We are the recipients of such compassion, such kindness, such self-humbling, such gentleness, such patience from God. Uh, as we let that settle into our hearts, we will be able to clothe ourselves with those same characteristics. Compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness and patience. Because we've fallen in love with the one who shows us that par excellence. God forgives us so much, says the Apostle. How can we not forgive others? Verse 13, bear with each other. Forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And as we come to believe that identity that Christ has given us, we will be able to live out that identity, verse 15. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace, and be thankful. As this happens in our lives, frankly rules somehow become irrelevant. Not because they were wrong, their instructions were good, but because they were shallow, because they were powerless to really change us. They were peace shooters against tanks. The tank which was our old nature, which drove in a destructive direction. You see, Christ has renewed our nature. Let it live. Paul says uh, the same thing in Galatians 5. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, um, uh, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law, he says. No rules once God has got a hold of you and started changing your heart. 
or uh, as he puts it in Colossians uh, 3 here, verse 17. Whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Whatever you do, if Jesus is at the heart of your life, if you have a deep understanding of what God has done for you, what he has prepared for you, you long for that more than anything else, then your life will be filled with thanksgiving and you will not sin. You will not go far wrong. When you fail, as we all do, when we fail, you will not need to amass a whole bunch of rules that, uh, uh, that you think will res- restrain your unruly heart. You and I will simply need to open up our hearts again to Christ who loves us and forgives us and sets us free. It sounds so counterintuitive, doesn't it? Doesn't it? Free forgiveness surely should lead to rampant immorality. But you see, that free forgiveness demonstrates the love of God which is so powerful. It transforms our hearts in such a way that we both enjoy that forgiveness and have our hearts transformed so that we are no longer attracted to those tawdry things we once were attracted to. Well, is there nothing uh, practical that we can do? Well, there are some practical things that uh, we can do and we should do. Perhaps just looking at uh, verse 16 will uh, help us to think about how we can cultivate that new life beyond rules. The first uh, um, element in in, in the toolbox that uh, Paul offers in verse 16 is what he calls the word of Christ. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, he says. If we don't read our Bibles, if we don't wrestle with it and, and try to see how everything points to Christ, if we don't meditate on that and savour it, not just for a little while on a Sunday morning, but in our lives as a routine, of course we won't get, live good lives. I'm shocked by the national statistics of how little the average British Christian reads their Bible. I hope it's not reproduced here. I'm shocked by how little effort people make to understand their Bible. You know, the majority of Christian homes these days don't even have a one-volume Bible commentary like the New Bible Commentary or, or, or a New Bible Dictionary. Shame on us. Do we never have a question that we want some answer to, that we want to wrestle with? And I don't make that observation as a sort of middle-class intellectual Oxbridge graduate, you know. I make it as that observation as someone who knows how Christians live for the last two or three hundred years. And I know that ordinary, uneducated, humble homes 
of uh, 100 and 200 years ago would have had uh, a well-thumbed Bible, a copy of Matthew Henry's commentary and John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress at the very least. And they would have spent weeks worth of their wages sometimes to buy any one of those books. And we, who are infinitely richer, can barely bother to invest in one little uh, NIV. Of course, Bible reading can become just one more rule that, 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 um, uh, that the Bible is so against. But, but, but just because some people have eating disorders doesn't mean that none of us should eat. The Word of Christ is our nourishment. So you feel troubled by sin. Are you wrestling with scripture? Are you letting the word of Christ dwell in you richly? Second thing, a tool that God gives us is one another. Teach and admonish one another, says Paul. We need teachers, not just preachers like me, but friends who know their Bibles. If you don't belong to a house group, you are missing out. Sometimes we need admonishing from, from, from our friends because our hearts can be incredibly deceitful and sometimes our friends can see more than we can. Always we need teaching from our friends. Other Christians are God's gift to us. We should look after one another. Helping one another with all wisdom, says Paul. And the third tool is perhaps particularly surprising, verse 16. As you sing psalms, hymns, spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts. If you go past a, a, a Hindu gurdwara, a, a Hindu, Hindu nat, a temple, um, you will hear puja being performed. If you go past a, a Sikh Gurdwara or a uh, Muslim mosque, you will hear prayer. If you uh, stand outside the Tibetan Buddhist uh, centre, you will sometimes hear chanting. But if you stand outside a church, you will hear singing. That is no accident. Christians sing to express joy and thankfulness. There will be singing in heaven, you know, in eternity. Coming from hearts that are so full of gratitude we cannot help but sing God's praises. And we can encourage one another now by singing. A... Um, dead saint um, of, the, of the 20th century wrote that he thought probably 99% of all uh, um, singing in church was um, barely worth the candle but he said for 1% that 1% when we God's people are gathered together and really singing God's praises from hearts united that is worth all the rest of the 99%. Because it expressed something of being together, 
thankful to God glorifying him and that encourages us I don't buy at all the pessimism of the modern world about being good and I certainly don't buy that dogma that that must mean that Christians are incredibly repressive and controlling in order to live up to these high demands of the Bible because I see how God transforms hearts and how people are both free and good only he can do that